Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. So let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 5 if you have one. If you don't, that's okay. We do have uh, the words for the text will be up on the screen for us. There is uh, not an outline in your bulletin, but I think we're going to have one up on the overhead uh, just because, um, like I said, this is really hard. And so even on even Saturday, yesterday, I was uh, mixing the dough uh, for what I was going to say this morning, trying to think about how, what, what do I say. But let me give you a little background on the passage before we read it so you know what we're looking at here. Um, this is a psalm that most people think was written by David. It's described to David here. Um, sometimes people think mm, maybe from somebody else, maybe it's in the style of David, but it's probably David. And the reason this becomes significant for us is because David, from the moment he entered into the pages of Scripture, dealt with conflict of a variety of sorts. So David, in the first chapter that he appears in 1 Samuel, he's anointed the king over Israel instead of King Saul. And uh, so uh, David, uh, the next chapter is Goliath, and where David takes on the giant and fights the battle for Israel that Saul should have fought. And so at this point, it's become clear, God has rejected Saul from the kingship, and David is the king. Saul has the kingship, he has the throne, he has the political power, but David has the spirit of God and the affection and the support of the people because he fights their battles for them. And so from this point on, Saul is trying to kill David. So David's life is filled with conflict. But the psalm that we're looking at today may not be from that era of his life. The psalm that we're looking at today may be from a later era in his life. And uh, one uh, particular commentator pointed out some of the details of the passage that we're not going to be able to go into just for time's sake. But the thinking is that this took place when David's son Absalom tried to take over the throne from his father. And so David is dealing with the deep hurt, not just from his son, but from all these people that he and his son had in common. And who do I trust? And these are people that I loved, that I thought loved me, and now there's conflict that's here. And so you can hear the pain, you can hear the frustration, you can, feel, you can hear his cry to God as we read Psalm 5. So I want you to listen for David's voice in this, but uh, for some of us in here, We've been through some hard things, and so probably this psalm gives voice to your pain as well. So if you're willing and able in in, uh, honor of God and his word, let me invite you to stand as we read Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. 
Make your way straight before me, for there's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is the word of God. It's true. And he has given it to us because he loves us. Let me pray and ask him to bless us as we talk about it. And Father, as we read this, uh, some of us can completely step into David's shoes. We have been in a situation where people who, uh, people that we loved, uh, that we thought loved us, uh, caused us great harm and hurt. And we've been in situations where we were in communities of people who were split because of brokenness. We... We've experienced a lot of these things in this psalm, and we've asked, Lord, as we come to this passage this morning, that you would minister to us by your spirit, that you would take the words that we're reading here and apply them to our hearts to bring healing, uh, to bring bring hope, uh, and even for those of us who may not have been through this but have family members or friends who have, to know better how to minister to them. Would you bless us? And Lord, would you bless me because you know that a lot of these things are close to my own heart and experience. And I pray that you would be pleased uh, to take what has happened and use it for the good of uh, people who may be uh, listening in um, and uh, here this morning. Would you bless us and bless our time in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. I'm going to start with a quote. Um, from a a Christian singer named Ellie Holcomb. Ellie said, I am so very broken that I do need a savior, someone to rescue me from all the things I've done and have been done to me. I like like that she said that because a lot of times when we think about Jesus as savior, we think about him saving us from our own sins, which is true, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But also, the Bible talks about Jesus rescuing us and bringing redemption and healing from the sins that are caused uh, against us. And I think that's why this psalm is important, because most of us have an awareness that the Bible provides all kinds of resources for us when it comes to dealing with our own guilt, our own shame. Because we look to Jesus who died for us because he loved us. We look to a God who's adopted us into his family. We look to a God who's taken our sins on himself and forgiven everything and says, I've removed it all so that it will never be held against you. That helps me deal with the brokenness of my own choices. But we don't really consider that the Bible has a great deal of resources for people who have been on the other end of uh, sin and brokenness and have been hurt by others. Uh, As I said, the Psalms are full of prayers and laments about threats and violence. Every New Testament letter. um, I'm going to try to speak in Fisher-Price language or avoid things this morning. Is that good? We good? Okay. So... um, So uh, I was reading this week in a GQ interview uh, with uh, Marcus Mumford. Uh, Are any any of you know who the Mumford and Sons are? Yeah, I love Mumford and Sons. We listened to that. My sons got me, my sons, the Speaks and Sons got me listening to that. And uh, he's got a new, his first solo album out. And in that, he's processing abuse from his childhood at age six. He's 38. And what it led to, he said, was a lifetime of shame for him. 
a lifetime of shame. And uh, so this is, he's around 38 now. He said it, it came out in substance abuse. It came out in eating issues. It came out in relationship issues. He just was under this cloud of shame his entire life. And so finally he's beginning to process this. And he's got this new album come out where he's processing his own abuse, his own hurt from his childhood. Um, and so as I was putting this together, I couldn't help but think about that. But I also couldn't help but think about something else that was going on because that happened when he was a, a child. But the things we do to other people can even affect us as in our adulthood. I got a call from a person I love this week, and he quit his job where he was making a lot of money because of what we would call the toxic environment where he was working. Right, so the, the, the boss that was there wanted to put everyone under his thumb. He wanted everybody to know that he was the superior person. He was better than everybody else. He knew what was best about everything. And so my friend said he was beginning to deal with physical and mental health issues. And so even when he went in to, uh, and he wasn't talking to the boss, he was talking to somebody else. Even when he went in and was talking to this person saying, I'm quitting, he had a panic attack. So he had to actually go to the, the guy who was sitting across the table said, you got to go to the hospital right now. And so this guy went to the hospital. They hooked him up to an EKG and they said, it's not a heart attack. You are having a panic attack about this. And so they said, don't go back to work at this place. Because his boss used every control and manipulation tactic in the book to play mind games with his employees. And my friend was one of those people who, was, who suffered in that. And so now he's dealing with the aftermath of not trusting himself, not trusting his own thinking, being gaslighted, all the things that people do to one another, and he is just hurting on the inside, and I'm angry while I'm preaching, <laughs> just thinking about that having taken place. I have to be superior. I have to win. I have to be first. David describes the arrogant man in this passage. Yale theologian Miroslav Wolf uh, I read this this uh, past week in another book. He calls this a false identity, a false identity of saying, I have to be superior to everyone else. And what he's getting at is we were created in God's image for us to find our identity and who we are before him. We carry the image of God. The things about us that we love or, or reflect the image of God, and we're supposed to find our security, our identity, our sense of purpose, our sense of self in that. But because of sin and the brokenness of the world, we find it in anything else particularly in power. So in his book, Miroslav Volf, uh, he wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace, he recounts the biblical story of Cain and Abel. And he asked the question, why did Cain kill his brother Abel? Right? And we might just say blanket, well, it's, it's sin. But Wolf goes on to talk about that a good bit more in detail. He says, the answer is that Cain's, and this is Wolf saying it, his answer is that Cain's identity was constructed in relation to Abel. In his mind, Cain was great in relation to Abel. In other words, I'm here, Abel's here. But then Abel began to surpass him, and his offering was accepted before the Lord, and Cain's was not. And Cain, looking at this, is dealing with this change in reality. No, Abel's here and I'm here. And he couldn't deal with that reality because his self-esteem was fully dependent on the certainty that he was better than Abel. And so, this is what Vol says, Cain either had to readjust radically his identity and find it in something else, or he had to eliminate Abel. 
And the murder, Vol says, did not stem from some irrepressible violent urge. Rather, it was the result of the cold logic of a perverted self in order to maintain its own false identity. Do you see that? I have to be in charge. Now, here's, this is why Psalms like Psalm 5 are so important for us. That's in the second generation after the fall into sin in the garden. Adam and Eve's two children, one commits murder because he's not finding his identity in Jesus. He's finding something else, and he can't bear that his brother is succeeding when he seems to be failing. So he murders his own brother. And here we are generations and generations out, and that same thing is in every single one of our hearts in this room and in the world, constantly comparing ourselves and finding our value and significance uh, with one, against one another or things that are in the world. And this is why the psalm is so important. 3,000 years later, it's completely relevant. Um, in the past couple of years, in recent years, it's come to the forefront that one in four young women uh, face some sort of uh, Fisher-Price abuse. And by the time they are 16, one in six boys. Um, and this isn't including things like domestic violence, workplace abuse, toxic environments, assault, spiritual abuse in the church, which has come to the forefront in the past couple of years. Um, which is, you know, when we come to the Psalms, our most beloved Psalms talk about God's love for us, his provision of grace for us, and the blessings of knowing him and following him in life. Even in hard places, the love of God, the grace of God, the blessings of God are all still true. And what this psalm is, I'm hoping, helping us do this morning is to step more fully into those blessings and love and grace of God, despite what many of us have been through, right? And my hope is for some of you in here who may not have been through that, to be able to step into that with other people in a way that is gracious and loving and directs them towards God. The help, so it's a little... So it's like, do we need to pull out couches and we can be on like the psychologist counseling couch or something like that? No, we're, we're going to talk about scripture. Uh, three points uh, from the passage. Cry out to the Lord, talk to yourself about the Lord, and entrust yourself to the Lord. Those three things. So cry out to the Lord. First one. Uh, David begins with a cry to God. It's, it's actually a tumble of synonyms for prayer in the first several verses. He says, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. So what's, what is going on here is, is God really not listening and David's trying to get his attention? You know, like ADHD is like, hey, pay attention, I'm right here, pay attention to me. I don't think that's going on at all. Uh, in fact, if you read in Isaiah 59.1, it says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. He hears. So what's going on? Well, having talked to people and having been through some things like this myself, I'm going to tell you this is the remedy for a mind that can't stop. It's the remedy for a mind that can't stop, crying out to God. When something bad happens, a person can't think, and they replay that scene over and over and over in their minds. It's, it's like professional athletes watching a film, a game film. Let's rewind that and watch that again and see if there's some detail I missed before to help me process what happened because there's such confusion about why would people do something like this? So there's a question. And we keep playing it over in a way that's not helpful. So when you play it over, what you're thinking is, this is what I wish I had done differently. And then you get angry about what happened. Then you replay with a sense of shame and weakness and worth. You become bitter and you become sh shut down and, def and defenseless. Or you think, well, the next time I see this person, this is what I'm going to do. 
And so you're fostering malice and hatred in your heart. Or you promise yourself that you will never let anyone do something like that to you again. And you become defensive and closed off towards other people just in general. You're always looking at other people self-protectively. We're always doing that. So it's... um, and the co- reason why is culturally we bottle this up. We don't want anybody to know because we feel so ashamed about what happened and how weak we feel, but it's there. So my friend that called me this week, uh, he, just, he told me what had happened and told me that he had, he had quit the job. And I said, uh, and he, as he talked about what was happening, I realized this is what he's dealing with, this kind of abuse and manipulation and things. And I said, let me, you're probably from like one o'clock in the morning to five o'clock in the morning, most mornings uh, awake, lying in bed, thinking about ruminating on these things, kicking them around in your head like you're watching an old football video. And he said, it's not most mornings, it's every morning. He said, I can't sleep, it's keeping me up, right? So I think that's what David's doing here is he is meeting all of those ways that we tend to replay things. He's saying, instead of doing that, pray, sigh, groan, lift it up to God, present it to him and say, here, and God is ready to take that and say, I will take that from you. I will hold that. So when you're replaying it and you're feeling off balance, he's saying, turn your mind towards God, cry out to God, draw on the goodness of God. And he calls out, he calls out to God in as many ways as he's trying to fix the problem himself in his head. If I can just figure it out, then I can fix it. But he can't. So he's saying to cry out to God. And a great way of doing that, if you, if you find yourself in that, or if you're counseling somebody who's going through that, counsel them to focus on the beautiful things in their life. The favorite spot where they like to walk. The, thing, the people in their lives they know love them, the opportunities they've had in their lives and the beautiful things they've been able to enjoy and see, and help them to begin to get away from thinking of those things but turn to gratitude towards God to say, thank you for my family, thank you for the situations, thank you for the abundance of things I've enjoyed in my life. So foster gratitude. The second thing is uh, to talk to yourself about the Lord. So verse 4. He turns from talking to God about his situation, saying, listen to me. In verse 4, he says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. And this is important because he's probably catastrophizing the situation and making it worse than it really is. And uh, at this point, he's lying about the situation because he feels he can't see the truth. Diane Langberg, who is a a well-known psychologist dealing with trauma. Uh, She came into the forefront dealing with uh, uh, Vietnam veterans who had come back and been traumatized. And that's where a lot of the language of trauma first came into our our modern parlance is through her. But uh, she said, human beings who experience trauma feel alone, helpless, humiliated, and hopeless. And people who are there live in a very negative place. And when you live in a negative place like that, you become very bitter about things. I read a conversation recently about a man who said uh, that he had been hurt by someone he loved. And he was trying to do everything in his, in his heart not to become bitter. And this is what he said. I think this is brilliant. He said, I've heard it said that harboring bitterness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. The more I feed bitterness in my heart, the more it brings death to me. Bitterness is like a stain. 
You know, you go to sit down on the couch and your coffee or your wine or something sloshes out and gets on the couch. If you leave it there, it's going to stain. But if you try to clean it up immediately, there's less a chance of it staining, right? And some of you are going, I just did that this week. And you may have done that week, and that's okay. Um, but what you have to do is get it up very quickly. And uh, because when this happens, you're confused, you're, you just leave it. But you've got to deal with it very, very quickly. And you have to see it in this passage, a truth you need to begin telling yourself is we have a God who listens when no one else hears. A God who is righteous when everyone else seems to be wicked. A God who can do something when no one else seems to bother. When you go back to the Diane uh, Langberg quote, she says, you feel alone. And David realizes, I'm not alone. This is who God is, and he loves me. And I want you to see this, uh, because we could gloss over this, but we need to spend a little time here. In verse 5, we see that God is really angry. God is fuming at what has happened in this passage. We say God hates sin and loves the sinner, but look at what he says in verse 5. God hates the evildoer. That's really strong language, isn't it? God hates the evildoer. He, and what it's saying, what, he, what David is communicating, what God's communicating in the psalm is, God's not going to shrug this off. He's not going to ignore it. He's not going to downplay it. He's not going to be complicit with it. He's not going to enable it. He's not going to whitewash it. He hates it. There are, you don't see that, and you don't read that very often in the Scripture. When you read the Bible, it says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And right here he says, God hates what happened to you. God hates when people do this. So what is this teaching us about God? Well, God cares about what happens to us because he loves us. God does not tolerate harmful, hurtful behavior because he loves us. People don't get to make life choices or say things that affect other people negatively because yet again, God loves us. And God will remove people who persist in harmful aspirations, hurtful behaviors, and damaging pursuits. He'll remove them permanently from his world. Verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. That is really strong. But we know it to be true. And our story writers, modern story writers, know this to be true, right? J.K. Rowling wrote Harry Potter. She knew that if, if persistent evil will not stop, it must be stopped. Voldemort won't stop, so he must be stopped. The Lord of the Rings, Sauron won't stop, so he must be stopped. Um, Star Wars, the Emperor will not stop, so he must be stopped. Chronicles of Narnia, the white witch will not stop, so she must be stopped. Every superhero movie, they won't stop, so they must be stopped. And then, and then the catharsis comes at the end with victory, and after the victory, celebration, and after the celebration, peace, because the evil has been removed. And this is all not because God has some other emotion, some other motivation in him than love, 
but he responds this way precisely because he does love. I got an image from my life when I was younger. I was in second grade, and uh, we had gotten a family dog. His name was Skipper, which is kind of an innocuous name for this little mongrel. Um, but we, we didn't get Skipper as a puppy. We got him as a kind of a full-grown dog. And I think when my dad got him, he didn't know that Skipper was a biter. And so uh, he, he had, had bitten people on a couple of occasions. Rebecca Cliver and the girl across the street, was, she was just running. We were playing outside. And Skipper ran alongside of her and bit her on the heel. That was bad. One day I was outside with Skipper, and uh, we were throwing, I was playing fetch with him. He would run and get the ball, and he would bring it back. And I was doing what any, you know, second grader would do is I faked the throw, and then I taunted him, and then he bit me on the face. <laughs> he jumped up, and canine here, canine here, canine here. So that's not a dimple. That's a scar over on this side. So Skipper jumped up and bit me, and I fell on the ground. And, you know, I had, uh, I had, we just found a pair of my old glasses this week. They're like this thick. Um, so I had my, my glasses were on the ground, and uh, I put my hand over my face, and then when I pulled it off, I saw the blood. And that's when I started wailing in the yard, just screaming and crying out. And the next thing I knew, my dad came running outside. My dad, uh, at that point, was 6'6", six, six, about 270 pounds. He was a big man. And he ran, not to me, he ran straight at that dog. And he grabbed that dog and sent that dog flying across the yard. And he chased that dog. <laughs> he, he grabbed the dog. He took the, the, the doghouse and just turned it over on top of, not to crush him, like the opening, like so the dog was trapped inside of it. And then he came over to me. And was, of course, while my dad's doing this, I stopped crying, just like, that's awesome. <laughs> and then, you know, when it's over, it's like, oh, I start crying again. <laughs> um, so I had to get seven stitches and those kind of things. But I never saw that dog again. I don't know what happened to Skipper. I'm glad he's gone. But here's, but here's another thing. Another point, to, this is actually a point to this, um, is my dad didn't just do that with dogs. You know, it's a Pekingese, you know, he'd be walking down the street. It's a great St. Bernard. Oh, I can't throw that one. In right? He didn't just do this with dogs. It was that dog and what that dog had done. And because he loved, he responded in anger and rage, and you can dare say hate because of what had taken place. Right? It's not against his love. It's because of his love. And when David is writing in this passage about uh, what has been done to him, he's acknowledging this is a God who doesn't stand for those types of things because he's that, his love is that great. His love is that great. And so he responds that way to eliminate anything that causes harm or damage. Now, as you begin to read people like Miroslav Wolf and others uh, who have actually, he was, uh, his, his family, his, his, his race was uh, targeted for genocide. He said, the only way you can actually deal with your hate for other people and to stop the cycle of violence of you trying to retaliate which you see in cultures where one group tries to kill one group and then the other group responds and you have it back and forth, is to be able to stop and say, nope, I'm entrusting myself to a greater judge. That desire for revenge in me leads to further bloodshed. But if I have a transcendent judge who loves me and loves those involved and he's wise and he can step into the situation, he's going to bring ultimate judgment, I can release that from me and hand that over to him. I can entrust myself to him, to his judgment, 
And so we can do what the New Testament tells us to do is to forgive and to let other people go and say, I have to leave that in God's hands to forgive others. And that's actually what he's telling us to do here is to entrust ourselves to the Lord. Verses 11 and 12, he says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now, as I was reading this the first time, I was thinking, okay, so this is a statement about all people who are righteous. But as I was reading in some of the commentaries, I realized, no, my, my, my first impulse was right. This, this isn't talking about me. I'm not the righteous one in this passage. And you're not the righteous one in this passage. David's not the righteous one in this passage. Who's he talking about? Because he's not just saying the blanket righteous. If you're righteous, the Lord's going to do this. But he's saying him. There's an individual person who is righteous. And if you're in him, the shield covers you. So commentator James M. Hamilton gives us a little help, and he translates Psalm 5, verse 12 this way. He says, Yahweh blesses the individual righteous man, and Yahweh, the Lord, surrounds him with favor that acts like a shield covering the whole body. Now, this is significant because as you're reading through the psalm, our tendency is to read the psalm as if it's about us. But in the, the very inscription at the beginning, it says it's a psalm of David, which means this is a psalm of the person who's the king over Israel. And his throne is being uh, challenged. And so that means he's on the run. And if he's dethroned, we'll guess about who's going to be the wicked person who's going to have that throne instead. So what he's calling for the Lord to do is to spare him, to protect him and his throne so that his righteousness can cover the people. Now, here's the problem with that. David's not righteous. When he's writing this psalm, if it's the Absalom event, this is after Uriah and Bathsheba and adultery and committing murder and lying and all the things that David in this psalm is saying, Lord, protect me from those people. David's having to step back and say, I am those people. I did that with Uriah. I did these very things. So it's not at all about him saying, I'm the righteous one or that we're righteous. He's calling for the person that he mentions in verse 2, my God and my king, the one who had come a thousand years later. He's calling for Jesus here. And he's saying, he's the one. If you're in him, his shield covers over you. And David had to learn that. He already, he already had to learn to find refuge in God's mercy and in God's grace. There's a great picture of that, of being in, finding refuge from, in God's grace from God's wrath, because we're all sinful. The Old Testament image, the ark, Noah's ark, right? There are eight people who were in the boat, along with all the animals that are in the boat. And God pours out his wrath and judgment on the world, and everybody in that boat and nobody else was saved from the wrath of God by being in the boat, by being in the ark. That's a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Is anybody who is in Jesus is like being in the ark. So the wrath of God has already fallen. The storm of God's wrath has already fallen on Jesus. And we find refuge in him. Our, the sin is taken away from us. But at the same time, as we look at this passage, we see uh, the, you know, pointing towards Jesus 
pointing towards the future and the person that we would find refuge in is the name of Jesus means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. That's what his name means. So when we read, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and that's the, the fuller name of God that we talked about, I think, last week, is Jesus is God's son. So all the things we see in the Father, we see in Jesus. So we can read that as Jesus, Jesus, the gracious and compassionate son of God. He stepped into the world as our king to rescue us, to rescue us from our sins, but to rescue us from all things that are broken in the world, right? So when Jesus was in the, the world, he was a one-man outpost of the kingdom of God. And you see him walk around. He's a one-man outpost of redemption and healing. He's a one-man outpost of redemption and um, forgiveness. He's a one-man outpost of of life, giving life to those who are dead. He's a one-man outpost of provision, providing for people who are hungry. He is the kingdom of God outpost here, and as he walked the earth, you see these things, and it's beautiful because Jesus is fully, fully human, just like you and me, but he's fully God, so he's got a hidden power that none of us may recognize at first, but it enables him to step into the brokenness of our lives and lift us out of it. Brian Chappell tells this wonderful story about a missionary that he got to know. Um, this missionary had been in a, a remote place in Africa, and uh, it was a place where it was very arid. There wasn't a lot of water, and so they would have to dig these deep, deep shafts, shafts down into the, the ground, and that's where they, they would have their well. And their wells weren't like ours where you have the bucket, you know, and you, you wheel it up with the, the, the pulley system. Uh, instead, they, they made it like a ladder. So in the rock, they carved little ridges. So somebody had to climb down with an animal skin to where the water was, scoop out the water, and then put it over the back and then climb to the top. Well, this missionary is visiting this village for the first day, and uh, he they introduced him to the, uh, the chief of the village. And it was one of those things that may have seemed cliche for us if you've seen movies where it's an African village where, you know, he's got the big uh, maybe skins and robe on with the big bumps on the side showing with big broad shoulders, and he's got the big headdress on. And so he's looking at this man saying, this is an impressive sight this man who's there. And uh, so they're talking, and then somebody ran over to the king and said, the person who was going down into the shaft to get water for the village for that day fell on his way in, fell all the way to the bottom, and broke his leg, and he cannot get out of the well. And so the whole entourage with the king, including the missionary, walked to the well, and he said at this point, the king came and shrugged off the robe and took off his headdress. And he said, this was the most muscular, athletic man I have ever seen in my life. And so the king, having this hidden power, climbs down into the shaft to where this person had fallen and broken his leg, hoists him onto his back, and the king climbed all the way back up to the top of the well carrying this person on his back, carrying this person to safety because he was the only one who was strong enough to do so. So we come back to this passage. We have a king who is able to rescue. We have a king who is able to heal. This one person outpost. And what Jesus, what this passage tells us is that Jesus doesn't just rescue us from our sins. He rescues us from the sins of others. He lifts us out. He brings healing to us. He's able to protect us. 
but he doesn't protect us every single time, but he's able to bring new strength into our lives because of the hard things that we go through. Some of you in here, if, I gave, if we gave you the microphone for a minute, you'd come up and, and you would not do Christian karaoke, I promise. We wouldn't make you do that. Uh, but you could, give a, you could testify to how God had used something broken and hard in your life to bring something good, even better in your life. He rescues it and brings about something better. Me. I had a Psalm 5 experience. I'm not going to go into detail. Um, but I had a Psalm 5 experience. And so a lot of what I'm talking to you about, I know firsthand. I've been through that. And when it happened, Rebecca will tell you, I was a shell of who I had been prior to that. I could not function. I couldn't think straight. I just sometimes just wanted to go sit in quiet without any kind of noise or anything disturbing me. This is true, right? You better say yes, because I just kind of, yes, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if she'd said, that's not true at all, then I'd be, that'd be in trouble, right? Um, we remember that very different. So I would just sit, and it stunk. And that thing that Diane Langberg said that I quoted from, I felt alone, I felt helpless, I felt foolish, I felt humiliated, I felt hopeless in that situation. That was years ago. And now I can tell you, I can see what God was doing. He could rescue me from that. He did eventually rescue me and get me out of that because it was a toxic, toxic situation. But as I look back, I can say, this is what God was doing. One, this church plant would not have happened if that had not have, have happened. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be preaching. Uh, this would not be taking place. But God had this in mind. And so he used it because he's wise. And he knows what he's doing. But here's something else I didn't anticipate. I got a phone call from a guy I loved this week. Did I tell you that? He quit his job because it was, it was messing with his mind. It was messing with his body. And so I sat on the phone with him and just talked to him in a way that I knew he needed to be talked to because of what I had been through. And I ministered to this guy that I love. I'm about to cry thinking about it. Um, and I told Rebecca afterwards, I said, it is so weird, but I'm grateful I went through that myself for the honor of stepping into my friend's life and being able to walk with him through it. God knew what he was doing and letting that happen to me. In with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken and when we cannot trace his hand we must trust his heart when you are so weak that you cannot do much more than cry you coin diamonds with both of your eyes the sweetest prayers God ever hears are the groans and sighs of those who have no hope in anything but his love isn't that beautiful it's a great quote so for you, for you who've been through this, for some of you who are going through this, you're not weaker than other people and God loves you and is patient with you in your brokenness. For those of you, as you look back and you're hearing, reading this passage, maybe from a different perspective, maybe you've been on the other end and you've caused the hurt and you've caused the harm 
and you look at that and you say, I feel convicted. Well, the scripture bids you run to Jesus, run to the one who, the, the one righteous one who covers, run to the one who is our Noah's Ark from God's wrath, go to Jesus and say, forgive me for what I have done. And then maybe think about and pray about how you may approach somebody else and say, I'm sorry for what I did. I treated you this way, and I'm sorry I hurt you. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.